0: are we ready happy new year everyone it's nice to be back mind you the night hasn't gone off to a flyer really has it um i was just going to ask you to uh, turn your phones off and obviously we, we all know there's no talking but um how many of you, when we had Charles Chankel and Michael Messer on, do you remember? Yeah. Do you remember somebody up front were talking all the time? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the Stones and Get Your Yaya's out, they get, you know, Paint It Black, the devil, paint you black, which apparently was uh, Jadis Joplin. We got some pain in the ass from the bar. <laughs> <laughs> talking. And I, I asked him to be quiet, as he probably know, if you he were here. And eventually he did, and, and he apologised about it day after. And every time he sees me since, he, he said sorry. Tonight, I just, I just come in, and Malcolm and I, which I said, well, oh, thanks ever so much for coming to Pontefract. The same person lurched out of the door, worse for drink, <laughs> grabbed hold of me, and um, he said, "Don't you fucking ever, ever, ever!" talk to me again, like that. And I didn't generally know what he were talking about. <laughs> this was, remember this, before three months there, uh, yeah. So he grabbed hold of it, it was quite threatening, wasn't he? It? it was, you know, and um, <laughs> I did manage to say a line I've always wanted to say. I said, let go of me, otherwise you're going to be picking your teeth up with a broken arm. <laughs> <laughs> Rock and roll, eh? (laughs) Right, so when everybody starts talking tonight, right, a friend of us all, Mr. Jason Barnard. And once again, I've got a new best friend, (laughs) the truly wonderful Malcolm Bruce.
1: Welcome to Pontefract, Malcolm. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here. I feel like I'm in my sort of front room with my family. So there you go. Big family. (laughs) Big family, yeah.
2: But that's a good turn of phrase, because when we were exchanging emails about this particular album, Fresh Cream, you did describe it as a family album, so it seems quite fitting. Do you want to talk a bit more about the family element of the record?
1: Yeah. I mean... I actually got my mum to write me an email. Can I read this as a starting point? Yeah. I think this might be really helpful to put that in context. Okay, sorry, I've had a cold myself. So, here we go. From my mum, Janet Bruce, nay, Godfrey. Hi, my recollections from London, 1966. Blimey, only two years to 60 years ago. Friday, May 13th, 1966, the seed for a new band was planted. Ginger Baker and his wife, Liz, went to see Eric Clapton playing with John Mills' Blues Breakers at Oxford Town Hall. Huey Flint let Ginger take over drums for one number. The spark led to a drink after the gig. Ginger asked Eric if he would like to form a band, and Eric suggested Jack Bruce as bass player. Ginger wasn't happy with the idea, as less than a year before, he and Jack had parted on bad terms. During the drive home, Liz persuaded Ginger Jack was the man for the job. Shortly after that, Ginger contacted Jack, asking to meet. As the last time they had seen each other, Jack was at the wrong end of Ginger's knife. (laughs) Uh, Brackets, GBO, uh, Graham Bond Organization gig, and don't ask, exclamation mark. We decided it would be safer to get together at my parents' home rather than ours. The meeting went well, and Ginger and Jack shook hands on the the band idea with Eric on guitar. To start with, the band originally, The Cream, I believe Eric's idea for the name, had very few original songs. I, my mother, had thought of a song when I was out walking, and back home sung it to Jack, thinking it was something I had already heard. He assured me it was original and took the tune and lyric to the band in rehearsal. The riff, he added, in my opinion, made it quite special and Sleepy Time Time was born. Around the same time, Ginger came to visit where Jack and I lived in Bracknell Gardens, which is West London, where many future Cream songs were written. Ginger had been attempting to work with Pete Brown. He had an idea for a song, but in typical Ginger-style had ended the collaboration with Pete swearing he would never work with him again Uh, who knows why the song was titled Sweet Wine but he felt stuck with a lyric to finish it I scribbled down a few words Ginger was happy with them and that added another original song for the band later after Jack and Pete had established their writing relationship Jack would quip that he had got together with Pete in exchange for Ginger getting t- together with his wife, with my wife. Anyway, uh, following Cream's first official gig at the 6th Jazz and Blues Festival in Windsor, the band launched into the UK club circuit, very much the same gigs Ginger and Jack had played with the Graham Bond organisation and Eric and Jack with John Mayall's Blues Breakers. All three were known on the scene as excellent young musicians, and for them to have formed a band together created an immediate buzz. Eric had already been given the title God, which I can verify certainly on the London scene. Out and about with Eric in the very early days, we were coming up the escalators at High Street Kensington Underground on our way to do some clothes shopping at Kensington Market when some guys going down on the other side shouted, across look there's god <laughs> i remember that eric looked absolutely mortified apparently manager robert stigwood wanted them in the studio as soon as possible and as it was the early days they pretty well recorded the band's set list as their first album which was what became fresh cream i my mum wasn't at the recordings but i believe the band only spent around 3 days in the studio to make the record Stigwood was there in the role of a producer, but the guys didn't take him seriously. He had no input into the music and was very much out of his comfort zone. Jack told me they poured a full box of Kellogg's cornflakes over his head, possibly followed by a pint of milk, although that might be a bit fanciful on my part. Um, okay, uh, that's it. Oh, okay, that's it. Wow. So hopefully that. Uh, so that's my mum who was actually there um, giving a little insight into the sort of family aspect of it and then it kind of made me think that at the year previously in 1965 the Graham Bond organisation had uh, released their first album which was called Sound of 65 and my mum had done a similar thing, she'd actually contributed to a couple of songs on that record as well so, so I guess there you go behind every great rock star is a creative wife that writes lyrics.
2: Wow. But well, that happened you know,
1: quite I've... a bit in
2: that era in the sixties and seventies. I was speaking to Jenny Boyd recently who oh, yeah. contributed to a, a number of Fleetwood Mac songs and she wasn't credited. There's similar things with Yoko Ono and John Lennon. The fact yeah. that your mum was credited was I mean it shouldn't be seen as progressive whatsoever. But it you know, in a way it was for the time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've talked to my mum a lot about that, and I'm I'm sure some of you guys of that generation, you know, how women were treated was completely different. You know, I think um, uh, in many ways we have progressed in that regard. You know, a little bit more equality is a good thing, but yeah, for sure. Um, Go back to Marla, and he threw his wife's music in the fire, apparently, so, you know. So we've come on since then, I suppose. <laughs>
2: well, maybe we can discuss your your parents' background.
1: Because sure, they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I think your mum was from, was it Leicestershire? No, my mum's oh. uh, a Londoner. Um, yeah, she was... But um, she was born in 1946, and I believe that she was born out of London because of, you know, it's the end of the war. Right. And, you know, as we all know, like, that made everything crazy. I don't think they... I think my grandmother being pregnant had been out sent out of London at the end of the war Um, but no very much my mum was um, kind of Swiss cottage area Hampstead area kind of grew up in that whole went to Camden School for Girls with Linda Keith and others um, who obviously Linda Keith if you don't know uh, was instrumental a little later on um, she was Keith Richards' girlfriend and then had a fling with Jimi hendrix in new york and sort of uh, invited Chaz chandler to see jimmy in a club and the rest is history so you know it's interesting um going back to the early 60s it, and thinking about that music scene the people were it was a very small little scene you know it wasn't the pop scene it was this kind of r&b blues boom the marquee club the ealing club teenagers from camden school for girls going you know illicitly dancing and but it was they were into the music it wasn't anything there wasn't anything weird about it
2: yeah your, your grandparents on each side were socialists communists on, on on both sides so there's elements in common of, of your parents yeah
1: i think for whatever reason um Again, it's a historical moment in time, isn't it? But I think um, certainly on on both sides of my family that they were very much into the socialist principles at that time. Um, and it's funny when you come from that background and then you make a couple of million quid. <laughs> you drive back to Glasgow in your, uh, in your Ferrari and buy everyone a drink in the pub and talk about socialist values. And I'm not sure if that, how that pans out, but... Um, but yeah, my mom even went to, um, I guess it was called Leningrad in those days. So my great aunt Etty, who lived to 103 and was based in Soho her whole life, so she took my mom by boat in, the, I don't know, the late 50s, I guess, to Russia. And so when when my parents met at the Marquis Club, I believe, around my dad playing with um, Alexis Corner and my mum going to dance to the music uh, and they sort of just met and and that was one of the things they bonded over you know yes you know oh my uh we're members of the young communist party or whatever it was i think my mum was wearing a little russian badge that she'd got in russia you know and she fell in love with a russian sailor that was on the boat and when she was 13 or something i don't know so yeah
2: but your dad's background is absolutely fascinating the there's a really interesting period, I think he was, was he about four, when the, the whole family, your dad's family, went to emigrate to Canada and ultimately it was that communist socialist aspect that hindered them staying there. Is that right?
1: Yes, I think, uh, you know, obviously I'm not a historian, but I think, um, I think there was a lot of encouragement for certainly Scottish uh, working class families to try and go over there and sort of make a fresh start of it, probably because of economics or whatever. And sure, you know, uh, was that, did that kind of coincide with the McCarthy? When was McCarthy? I mean, and did that extend to Canada? I'm sure the kind of att- the anti-communist rhetoric and attitude as it continues today, right? I mean, and without judgment, you know, the, this is one of the fundamental things in in the human experience you know do we are we part of a collective or are we an individual is what is there some is there some kind of balance and of course there has to be some kind of balance because creativity itself couldn't exist without an individual you know uh, but then it could also not exist without tradition which is a collective form of creativity so you know my dad understood that and and i think i've understood that from him you know you have to stand on your own two feet in this life as a creative person or even just as a person right but you also gain so much by understanding history understanding the evolution of ideas
2: and your your dad seemed to have a almost innate talent for music i mean i've read that he sung for paul robeson when he was six yeah i think i heard that too yeah 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 it's just amazing
1: Yeah, but, I mean, Paul Robeson was a communist. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that's part of it. Right. Join the Communist Party, you'll get on just fine in capitalism. But you've got that
2: classical element as well, with your dad learning cello as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's a great tradition we all share, isn't it? I mean, I I was learning classical piano by the age of five, and then I, I learned the violin... The classical approach to violin, and I'm I'm still composing in that traditional manner, and um, and I think again it's something I inherited from my dad. This understanding that music is, it's not just one thing. It's each style of music, each approach to writing and performing and experiencing music is, it's all a big tapestry of the same thing. You know, it's not, there it doesn't have to be an exclusion of something, and I think that that. Is one of the things that my dad, that makes my dad so unique, that he could perform and write blues, but he could also understand Messian or Stravinsky. Um, he loved good pop music, you know. Um, so I think it's not being hierarchical about stuff. You know, I'm better than you because I know how to read music, or you know, I'm I'm better than you because classical music is more important than the blues or whatever you know all of those kinds of things the cultural culture and class and all of that kind of stuff so yeah sometimes it does take the oppressed the in the sense of the working class the proletariat must rise up and then become a capitalist <laughs> so i don't know i mean it's yes there are political aspects to creativity i guess You know, it's very easy for somebody born into lots of money who fancies being a writing symphonies to go, oh, it's just art for art's sake. Don't bring any of that political stuff in. But then some of the greatest art, you know, Bob Marley as an example, is about social commentary. It's about change. It's about... It is about rising up against the forces that keep us down, in a sense. I mean, that's part of... (coughs) creative expression is it, anyway it's at least available right to say hey we don't want we want to we want our own thing we don't want to be told what to do so you, your um, dad must have had, he, had
2: an incredible drive you know relatively young age I think first he went to play in the Midlands and then ultimately London he was still
1: yeah really he was young. in Italy and on an Air Force Base US Air Force Base when he was about 16 or 17 as well yeah I mean I think some of that um was my grandmother uh my scottish grandmother who kind of made him a favorite and i think you see that a lot with people that are very driven sometimes they have a a mother or a father that's kind of behind kind of going sort of metaphorically whipping the person motivating the person you know oh you're gonna be you're gonna be a star jack you're gonna be a star don't let anyone stop you pushed them all out the way you know or whatever so you know um i think my grandmother was that kind of person that um put him a little bit on a pedestal and he's you know there's a good side and a bad side to that kind of thing sometimes you you can create it's like a frankenstein's monster you know you create something that's that is incredible because you instill such self-belief into that person but then the other side is the potential for a little bit of narcissism and you know i am better than you so then all of that stuff so
2: but but as your mum was saying and this was a little bit later on in terms of the moment cream were formed but when your dad was first going into london you you started to see the building blocks of cream and the people around that scene when he was when uh, your dad was playing with alexis corner for example at an early age so a lot of the musicians were there on the scene at the time and ultimately over the, as we go from the early 60s into the mid 60s
1: ultimately it evolved to its culmination with Cream Yeah, it's really interesting, I mean as I said before it was a very small community of people that, were, that had kind of discovered this American form of music and they were buying the records and importing the records it was a very tiny thing, so you know at, for example at the Ealing Club with um, my dad and playing with Alexis Corner, and then they got a residency at the Marquee. But at the Ealing Club, before Ginger was the drummer, Charlie Watts was the drummer in the band. So my dad and Charlie were playing together before the Rolling Stones were formed, before Cream was formed. Guys from the Moody Blues were turning up to the gigs. Mick Jagger would turn up while he was a student at the London School of Economics, and he'd turn up and he'd kind of go, is it all right if I sing a song? And they'd let him... So there is actually a famous photograph somewhere of um, my dad on upright bass, Ginger on drums. No, Charlie on drums still. Um, Alexis on guitar and Dick Exel Smith on saxophone and Mick Jagger singing. And this is before Cream or The Stones or anything. So, yeah, they all knew each other um, as sort of... And again, you know, apart from John Mayall, who I think was born into a lot of money, I think most of those guys were, you know, normal working class kids, uh, baby boomers after the Second World War. But, you know, you had that whole U.S. influence um, and trade influence. But certainly from the war, you had uh, a lot of U.S. influence coming in more and more, which obviously affected the Beatles and all the great bands that had come before Cream. Um, were buying I don't know Little Richard or Chuck Berry records or whatever, and with the guys that we're talking about who were more influenced by the blues tradition, they were buying you know uh, I don't know Skip James or Muddy Waters or whatever the whole Chess records thing, and um, so really we're we're all indebted to. The American blues tradition, it's a bit, a little bit like what Elvis did. He kind of took black music and turned it white, but he still loved the black people and the black art. It wasn't a race thing, although the infrastructure at the time was in America. Um, I think it was less so here, and that's why so many black American artists would come here in the 50s and the 60s because they'd be res- treated with so much more respect. Alexis Corner himself was instrumental in as a promoter bringing over artists Um, I can't remember the name of the club but he ran from the late 50s until the early 60s ran a a blues and skiffle club or whatever he called it in London Uh, somebody might know I don't know but might be might be um but but anyway they he was bringing people like Muddy himself over I believe so so um so from a tiny tiny beginning all these people that loved this kind of music that wasn't really well known at the time in the uk literally from like 1961 62 which is when we're talking about to 66 when cream was formed and the stones before that and they were all taking that music reinventing it through the lens of british people and selling it back to America. And then it became a global phenomenon. So, you know, these guys were playing in front of 15 people in a club and then two years later the whole world knew about them. So I don't think any of them could have predicted that um, that, that evolution and how quick that might have happened and how much impact they had. They, they had a lot of self-belief as musicians and people, but from an economic point of view, I'm not sure. I don't know what was it like for a working-class person in 1961. Would they expect to own a, a rock star's mansion in the countryside, you know, like uh, drive in a Lamborghini or something. I don't know. I don't think those were the aspirations of those people. Maybe the aspirations were to make it, uh, you know, make a solid living and raise a family. I don't know. You mentioned driving.
2: It, it almost takes me to um, NSU in terms of the lyrics of that, you know, driving in my car,
1: you know. Yeah, but... Uh, it, Yes, but then that's isn't it a non-specific urinary something? Yes, <laughs> there is that. Yeah, driving to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
2: So, because you, your mum was secretary of the Graham Bond Fan Club, wasn't she? Sure. So,
1: was. so it's all it's all connected, isn't it? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, in fact, the reason my um, parents got together is that she, my mum, was. Not really dating, but had kind of gone on one date with a, a piano player called Johnny Parker, who was quite well known on the uk scene, but he was ten or fifteen years older um, and it was it wasn't it was something that he'd sort of asked her out and she'd gone along with but then when she turned up to see him, he wasn't in, and my dad was like kipping on johnny 's sofa because he was home like a homeless bass player you know, and then they got talking. Uh, and I think as I said they had met once before at the marquee so they kind of had met each other um so yeah it's all intertwined it's all everybody knew each other before they were famous you know and um then they got famous and it sort of all started shifting and changing and I and it's not just them as individual I mean I think I think about this a lot I wasn't born but but that time was such a unique time. It seems like so many elements converged to make it a very unique time in, in our history. You know, um, the end of the Second World War, the, the, the slight breakdown of class for a moment, so that and then youth culture, perhaps for the first time ever. You know, we'd never really had youth culture where young people had a voice. They could express themselves and... And uh, have opinions, you know. And uh, maybe I'm going to I'm gonna loosen that button, you know. <gasps> How could you do that? Do it back up right now. That sort of thing. So there you go. Get your hair cut. <laughs>
2: <laughs> maybe we should uh, cover a bit on cream. I think one of the th- things that makes them so special out of any group is that they were a... A trio of equals true true equals I, th- I think there's a quote somewhere about eric clapton at the start thinking to himself that he's he'd he'd almost be the front man but he, he didn't work out like that at all and then
1: you've also got ginger who... ginger could have been the front man yeah <laughs> no i mean i think you're right and armor urtigan the head of atlantic records when Stigwood was pitching and that's a complicated story because it was all tied in with signing the Bee Gees. And um, but certainly, Armet, being a man that liked other men in the same way that Stigwood did, you know, um, which obviously they couldn't be open about at the time. But they had their opinions on attraction, and you know, Armet wanted uh, it to be Eric Clapton's band with the other two guys as the back, as sort of standing a couple. At least two feet behind him and um and no they had to fight you know for my dad to sing songs and be an equal for all of you know so you are you're absolutely right and i think that is one of the things that makes the band so unique from even just from a purely musical point of view you've got three very strong characters within music and there's only three of them so you know if, as soon as you have that fourth tambourine player or second guitarist or whatever the sonic space is restricted and i think when you just have three there's all of this space for the bass to kind of do whatever it wants melodically move around be creative be inventive Uh, and rather than just being okay i'm going to play the root note of each chord and try not to get in the way of the real person who's playing the guitar you know um, and I think, you know, again, Hendrix. Obviously, there was a similar thing going on with that, and and the Who, to some extent, obviously slightly different format, where you have the singer who's just the singer. Um, um, but in a sense, it's a similar sound. And I think that that is in rock music. It's so open. It gives each musician the ability to really explore who they are in their personality. I think it's just wonderful. And as soon as you add one more person, it could, That ability disappears.
2: So yeah. I think we've got a clip. If we've got audio this time of uh, of uh, NSU, and it's just Jack on his own, sort of breaking the sound down. You see the real power of the bass. Oh okay. Oh no. Oh oh. Still on it. Sorry, I'm having trouble with the connection. (laughs) Please try again in a moment.
1: There you go. Uh, How does it go?
0: Uh, It's very difficult to do this without the drummer, you know. Um... Driving in my car, smoking my cigar. The only time I'm happy is when I'm playing my guitar. Ah, I can't believe I'm doing this.
1: My God, happiness is something that just cannot be
3: bought. Come on, all together now.
2: In terms of the release of Fresh Cream, on the same day, certainly in the UK, you've got the release of I Feel Free. And that's got such a commercial edge that works. It's outside of this album, although I think it was put on the US release.
1: Yeah, it wasn't on the original UK release. Yeah,
2: But, But your dad's got... Must have had that because it's, it's even got a bit of that sort of river-deep, mountain-high
1: sort of influence in it as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think my dad was a huge fan of um, people like James Jameson, the bass player, that had played on a lot of those Motown things. Um, and yes, I guess if you put it in context, when were those I Cantina records, you know, those kind of classic... Saw things that had started coming out. I guess they were before '66, or they were around that time—'63, '64, '65. So, as a young person starting to write, and this was very early days. You know, again, you know, you go to your wife. Oh, we haven't got any songs, but we've just put a band together with Eric Clapton, and he's God. What are we going to do? <laughs> well, I was whistling this thing, you know. So, I mean, that's what you've got. You And that's literally, as my mum explained, that is what was going on. That's why it is a family. It always has been a family thing. I mean, when I was growing up, I started doing music with my dad. And I have a daughter who is becoming an incredible artist herself. And we've always done stuff together. I think it is whatever you do in life. You are a family, right? You know, if you're a plumber, maybe your son or your daughter becomes a plumber because you're a great plumber. and Or maybe they say, oh, no, I'm going to become a chartered
3: accountant.
1: Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but with music, it does seem to run in families. Um, and whether that's just a cultural, social aspect to it or whether it's genetic, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's certainly things if you try and... If you sing, then you might have a certain genetic resonance with your parent um and also i don't know it's the nature versus nurture thing is probably impossible to delineate ultimately but but sure you know um family it's all family especially from uh, when you're in sicily it's family
2: (laughs) do you think it was the the strong personalities of that trio in Cream, that, as well as uh, Ginger's heroin addiction, things were, you know, the group only lasted a, a few years, even despite the, the volume of albums and the great live shows. But the dynamics between that trio was, was, wasn't going to last for, forever, was it?
1: It was just... Yeah, I mean, I think there's a multitude of reasons. I think the timing of it as well, again, you know, I wasn't around, but I can imagine 66, 67, 68, 69, it was was a revolutionary time. Whether that revolution then got subverted by MI6 and the CIA or something, probably. In fact, definitely, because uh, the powers that be weren't going to have a youth revolution taking over the economic structures of the planet you know they're not going to have John Lennon president of the United States of America or something so you know for sure um, I can't imagine how impactful that time was and how many what sense of possibility uh, for a creative artist Um, and you know Eric had always been much more straight ahead and still is you know to be honest it's not to denigrate his amazingness it's, it's just his interest has always been the americana blues tradition and a little bit of variation around that obviously he can write a great pop song as well but but he was and is i believe quite wary of jazz or or more complex harmonic structures that he always, almost perhaps might feel threatened by and with my dad it's the exact opposite how can i write a pop song that also is like is like Stravinsky or something so going back to I Feel Free on the surface it's the ba, 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 da, da, ba. so it's absolutely that kind of Motown it's got a groove the, the rhythm is like it could be it could be the singing, you know, whatever it is but you've got structures in there that are taken that are sort of just taken from the classical music Western classical music tradition so you've got a bridge one and a bridge two and in the second bridge he reharmonizes it so that it creates a completely different emotional effect with so the melody is rising the chords are descending and it becomes chromatic chromaticizes and it creates this tension and release and those things you're not thinking about it consciously as a listener but that's, it has it makes the song unique. In the whole pantheon of, of uh, popular music, really, in that sense, because he's he's playing a trick on everyone. He's going, I know, I actually know what I'm doing. I'm not writing just that. It seems like a really straightforward song, and it is. But there are things, the the effect that he can have on people by playing these little musical, using these kind of devices, musical devices. is just a really amazing thing. And I think with Eric he might have be like I don't know that court you know he might feel threatened by that because he's the consummate you know he he say I'd like you to sound like Albert King or I'd like you to sound like B.B. King or whatever and he knows he loves those people and knows everything that they ever did and is a master a a teacher of that but outside of that he might have felt threatened so I think that had a certain impact. Ginger Yes, Ginger was a registered heroin addict in London, which you could be in those days. I suppose, uh, oh, Doc, I've just got a bit of a cold, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, one of the provisos for putting cream together was that Ginger had to stop taking heroin, and he agreed to do that. And he did it. You know, to his credit, he absolutely did it. But then towards the end, he had started taking it again. Um and anyone that's been around somebody that takes heroin in that kind of extreme addict manner knows that it can be... It's not that they're a bad person, it's a, a, a disease, you know. And um, so I'm sure that would have had an impact. You know, my father had his addiction problems as well, but that not till after cream. Um, so maybe also the touring schedule, the, the pressure can't handle the pressure you know i'm not sure that they and again as i say working class kids five years into their career and suddenly they you know people are offering them take my wife here's the drugs take my wife here's my car keys you know or whatever it is you know it's i'm sort of making a metaphor out of it but i think that uh nobody had ever had those kinds of experience maybe in hollywood a little bit previously or elvis or whatever but most people um were just would be happy to get a gig or be in a band that was playing regularly um and making a living um and suddenly these guys were plastered all over the world and people were going oh you're really good and they're like oh oh i am okay (laughs) thanks can i have your wife
2: Dre, maybe we can uh, play a a short clip from the Farewell concert, which is Sunshine of Your Love.
1: So um, we have uh, Tony Palmer to thank or blame for this movie. I'm not sure which. I mean, I love Tony, I know him, he's an amazing human being. He did well. No, I mean it's it's interesting actually because he also did um, a film called Rope Ladder to the Moon, which is a documentary about my dad. And they go back to Glasgow, and my dad had bought an island called Sander um, in Scotland because he was a rock star. You got to buy it off an island, Um, but you know he's kind of walking around the Glasgow tenements and and then and the shipyards and all of that stuff and kind of, and but tony had written him you know listen to the guy doing this tony had written my dad a kind of script of this sort of profound script about you know how he'd come from nothing you know walking around the sort of slums of glasgow and all of this stuff so and i know that my dad didn't thought it was ridiculous you know it would have been better if tony had sort of just let him speak you know um instead of putting the words in his mouth to make it seem a certain way but I don't think that was Tony's I think that's just the, uh, another aspect of the times you know where you've got a, an upper middle class guy that gets given the budget from the BBC to make a, a movie um, they're not going to give it to the actual artist so, so there you go and I think it's a little bit with this you know the music is really interesting and the context is really interesting but They may not be the world's greatest musicians, (laughs) but they get through the greatest amount of people. I mean, that's not a little bit condescending.
2: But the next few years for your dad was an incredible blossoming because not only did you have songs for Taylor, you had jazz albums and a much broader palette that your dad painted with.
1: Yeah, because I think, and again, I think it's something I've inherited for better or worse. It's just the sense of possibility. The music is this. It's not a limited thing. I mean, of course, we we define it by limiting it. We we say, okay, we, here's a harmonic structure. It's not just, you know. So you kind of you self-limit in order to create something that's identifiable but um but in terms of the potential you know it's wide open and with my dad he was a jazz musician first before he was a blues musician and he was a classically trained cellist and singing in boys choirs before jazz and all of that stuff so so i think obviously when you have a level of success in the music industry and you have a little bit of money and record labels are interested in talking to you and managers want to manage you and people want to book you and all of that stuff it kind of opens it up and you kind of you i guess you can say well i i how about that symphony i always wanted to write (laughs) or um you know uh that jazz record that i always wanted to make so you know even before cream had officially finished i believe he made a record called um uh things we like which was his first first jazz instrumental record, uh, John Heisman on drums, later Coliseum, but had already played with the Graham Bond organisation, John McLaughlin on guitar, Dick Hextell-Smith, his already long-term collaborator with Alexis and Graham Bond, and my dad on bass. And so um, so he made that record before his official first solo record, Songs for Taylor." I think of the year previously. So. Yeah.
2: And on your dad's final album... Um, was it Silver Rails? Yeah. So you you worked with him a lot on on that album, and,
1: and Songs yeah. for a Taylor was a reference point, I think, or something that. Yeah, I think he felt that he wanted to find a way to sort of come full circle in terms of, I you know, I think my dad felt that that had been his definitive statement as a solo artist, even though it was his first record, and he made many many more records. I think he felt that that was he was a and many people would agree that he was. songs for Taylor was him at the height of his creative powers um, and uh, so yes with Silver Eyes I think he in a way took that as a template and did it again but as a, a, a final stage of his life and career I, I wonder if the final
2: clip we could play would be um, your dad on piano uh, uh, playing theme for an imaginary western which is I mean it's just a wonderful clip <laughs>
4: I
1: I actually think I might have been I might have actually been there when I was 12 or something Rock Palast obviously so
2: so over the last three or four years originally I think it was Cream Acoustic and it ultimately evolved into Heavenly Cream and when I spoke to uh, Pete brown before he died he was so passionate about that project and
1: when you, did you speak to him um you know how long ago So sometime at, last year about 18 months okay I, um, I think he's still here it's weird when you when you are so close to someone you do and then they pass away it's like maybe there's something that's a trick of the mind to yeah. help you deal with grief but i also think like he's still here it's floating. There you are, Pete. Sorry, um, go. On. <laughs> and you—it's it's more poignant.
2: And in the a number of—I mean, Ginger's on the album, and he's Bernie not here. Marsden. Bernie Marsden. I spoke to him as well, and he's oh, what he's a lovely gone. guy,
1: but yeah, I did quite a few things with him. Uh, just a sweet, incredible uh, talent, but just even more than that, just as a well, you know. So you spoke. To, I mean, just a down-to-earth honest decent guy you know and he was always encouraging younger musicians also i mean i'm working with a little bit with a great young uh guitarist called chrissy matthews and you know chrissy was telling me oh, i was playing a gig when i was 14 in a pub and uh bernie walked in and brought his guitar and encouraged me and you know so i mean yes bernie Wee ellis uh the sax player from james brown's band he's on this record He passed away. He'd been living in the UK with his British wife for many years. Ginger, uh, Mo Foster, the bass player. Uh, Yeah, Mo. Um, So, yes, it's strange that... um, I mean, the process of this record, I think it was partly that uh, we had a a director filming a, a making of documentary while we were making this record, and so that whole process of kind of editing a movie... So we made this record in 2018... And then by the time the record was done and dusted, mixed, mastered, and the documentary itself was uh, finished, it was the end of 2019. Then, of course, everyone's lives changed to whatever degree, I guess a big degree for most of us, in 2020. Um, and so for whatever reason, I think partly the pandemic, um, the label decided to hold back on it. And that's, I guess, yes, yeah, So from 2018 to two 2023, we lost a bunch of people on, on it's the a wonder, record. It's a
2: wonderful record, though. Wonderful. I mean, it oh. it's kind of evolves that cream legacy given the passage of time since the original versions, and it kind of almost put, takes on the baton but in an acoustic format.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it was a, uh, the right. I didn't make the choice. I think it was Pete Brown and the label initially made the choice let's make an acoustic record rather than. You know, let's redo cream songs because that's been done a million times. I mean, we can do. We musicians love to play that, get their wire, and do all of that stuff. Uh, it's a lot of fun. But um, but again, you know, I mean, we have one of the greatest bands. I think in this country is called the Ukulele orchestra of great britain and uh, you probably heard them and they're doing like nirvana songs with 40 ukuleles <laughs> i mean i love that music is music and it can be arranged in so many orchestrated in so many different ways and i think because we gave us that limitation you know we're going to make an acoustic record but it's not going to be a just the one acoustic guitar and a voice it's a, a fully orchestrated record just we're not allowed to make use electric instruments so um and that, but, yeah, I mean, obviously, if you get the right people the right chemistry in the studio, it just it the record makes itself basically i mean that's again with this kind of music, which is music a collaboration type of collaborative type of music, a getting in the room and getting a vibe type of music, you know, so um it doesn't hurt to have ginger on drums and. Bernie on guitar and Bonamassa and all those sort of people and Paul Rogers and so yeah well
2: after we play the album we come back and before the QA I want to talk QA I want to talk to you about your own music and your new album so we can can cover it then you've got a special request from Rev because it's not on the album is to play our final final clip which is I Feel Free which was from Beat
1: Club (laughs) Yes. fine. Yeah, so, so um, that was just what I was talking about a little while ago. It's the same melody, but he's just re He's put different chords underneath it. And it it's almost like a new, well, it is a new piece of music, but it's motivic. So you're using the same material. It's like clay. You're twisting it around and creating something new out of it. It might not be obvious on the front of it, but it creates a different emotional response to the same kind of piece of music. So, anyway. Amazing.
2: Uh,
0: thanks you too for totally blowing the time scale. <laughs> So we'll have a quick break. You can buy your raffle tickets and ponder and talk about what we have just heard. And a, what a wonderful, interesting conversation, everyone! Thank wow. you. After listening to the record, we had a post-album discussion and a bit of a Q and A. I
2: feel like we've got unfinished business, but we're not going to we're not going to finish it in this bit because we need uh, to give you uh, guys the time to ask Malcolm so many questions. But just a couple of things. Uh, Rev, you know, promised just after we'd heard the album kind of your reflections of that. So tell us, what, what do you think?
1: <laughs> How long <laughs> you got? <laughs> um, yeah, I think my by the end of that record, I felt like this is, yeah, I mean, this is not a pop record. Mm. So it was released in the pop charts and it, and it got to top ten, right, I think. Yeah. So again you know how did that happen i don't know how did that happen i guess it was the timing of it like people were turned on by this it's like fiery and loose but really tight and loose at the same really structured but really loose really explorative it's like a whole new language i guess it's like a whole new language because you'd hear people playing the blues and it'd be predictable da da or whatever, and everyone goes, oh, that's nice, you know. But these guys are the sort of antithesis of that. They're going, fuck you, you know, <laughs> like, uh, like, as uh, what's his name, Derek Smalls in uh, *Spinal Tap*, if anyone has ever seen. They go, projecting strength at all times, you know, <laughs> even when his hands stuck in the pod, you know, it's like, you know, show no no fear, you know. Yeah, there's an element to that, and. I mean, Ginger is the standout for me. It sounds to me like just... It's something otherworldly, almost. Um, and by the end, you're hearing what he's doing. You're, you're hearing... I'm hearing how he's turning time around. It's this thing. It's an African technique. You're, so you're playing in time, but you're shifting things. You're shifting. And it just creates this kind of kaleidoscopic effect, rhythmic effect. It's just... Phenomenon, And I don't think anyone had ever done that before, um, except for people, you know, in Africa. But they'd done it in a different cultural context um, and a different musical context, you know. So it's just, again, it's fusion music. Um, uh, there's jazz, blues, classical, uh, psychedelia, you know um so yes it's uh i guess it was of its time but it was also exploding all those possibilities that had been building up and up to sort of converge and it happened to those three guys for whatever reason so yeah anyway we could go on for hours so many things to say about it what do you guys think is more important and then just and then finally and this is one of the areas where we've
2: think we may have unfinished business is that we haven't even had a chance to talk about your wonderful solo work your mu- and it feels like with your new album it could be your most ambitious album yet do you want to tell us briefly about your, your new album?
1: yeah i mean i'm still in the middle of writing it recording it um it's called fake humans and real dolls uh i guess i'm attempting in my own way to express what i'm experiencing right now in history in my own personal life in the larger context of like what we're all sharing on this planet you know what we're going through all the manipulation through the media um, but also where we're heading where humanity is heading we're in a really interesting time where are we going to head and how does love and family and Um, all the important things in life how does that all fit into there when humans are not appreciated anymore because AI took over and said these humans with their neuroses and their creativity it's all a bit overrated so maybe we get rid of them and we'll just just have artificial intelligence instead so anyway I'm trying to express some of these (laughs) things at a record we'll see what happens
2: maybe we go open the floor
1: um, I
0: think I'll start, actually. <laughs> 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 Having bought this album when it first came out. And it was like um, we'd had the, the stones and the yardbirds and the pretty things and the animals, all, etc etc doing blues music. But this kicked off the second wave of the British blues boom. And we'd never heard anything like this... Uh, that those of you can remember buying this, because there's three people making this noise. It sounds like there's eight people in the band, not three. And it's so heavy, isn't it? It's, it's
4: heavy.
0: It's it's heavy metal. Before heavy metal, it's so heavy, most of it. And having and all the other great pretty things of stone and all the great, they were great blues players, but we'd never heard it in this context. And then we got Fleetwood Mac coming along and what have you. But you couldn't imagine these three fuckers making... evolving
1: into rumours, could you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, if you give them enough, a big mound of cocaine, they probably get it done in a week. You know. um, anyway, that, that's my no. take. Okay. No, I agree. I mean, I think it's a heavy sound. It's not the volume necessarily, because obviously later on everyone kind of started putting well i suppose cream did it to some degree but then you got to the head real heavy metal and you know 700 marshall stacks on all, yeah. all that yeah. nonsense um, and then the sound starts to get smaller so it's not necessarily the technology although that was catching up jim and terry at marshall were developing these incredible amps that did shape the sound of rock but and then eric there for instance is playing Gibson guitars into Marshall, I would imagine Marshall at that by that stage. Um, you know, whereas yes, the earlier generations, it's a different sound when you've got a, a Fender Strat into a, yeah. a Fender a Twin Reverb amp. It's a very clean. You're, it's a whole different thing. So the amps are breaking up in that gorgeous way that is the sound of rock music. Um, but I always also like. It's not me. Um, no, what, it's I, back. what I also got from it is that you're hearing the recording techniques used mean that you're actually hearing the musician's personality. You're actually kind of hearing almost like, oh, the you know, the scraping of a nail across the string kind of detail. And I don't always pick that up on records that I hear. Sometimes maybe because of compression, which is a... a In case anyone doesn't know, it's a mixing technique uh, that squashes the dynamics of something so that you can make it louder, uh, consistently louder. You hear it on radio all the time. So a lot of records are compressed, which does alter the perception of it. Hmm. I heard dynamics in this record. So it's going down to this whisper. And then... Wow! So that the contrast between loud and soft, uh, which is a fundamental of music making... Which you rarely hear because of radio again. I think radio formatting said, no, we can't, we need a two and a half minute song. Uh, Sorry, that intro is too long, cut it, you know. Like uh, the impact of extra musical people on how music was then created. And I think there you go. There's a a band pouring Kellogg's cornflakes over Robert Stigwood's head. Because he was trying to be the producer, and you try and produce Ginger Baker. I mean, we had a go, you know, you better not tell him what to do. <laughs>
0: so it's, that, it's John,
1: John Timperley, really, the engineer. The enge- great engineer, obviously, yeah. who had an incredible.
0: He's responsible for this,
1: really. Isn't the sound of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And not, obviously, they had great engineers going through, and, you know, um, uh, Andy Johns at one point, I think, was assisting uh, him and glynn Johns, you know. I mean, Beatles, Stones, uh, Exile on Main Street with Andy and all of that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I think the engineer, the recording engineer, uh, was an essential part of this record, for sure. Right, Irving, have you got a question? Right. Okay, I'll
3: stand up. Well, actually. Oh, yes.
1: He's already for. We've done a pre interview as well.
3: Testing one, two, three. Um, Asher Malcolm, I've got two questions, and the second question will be depend on what you say of the first question. Okay. <laughs>
1: um,
3: I read recently an interesting uh, um, interview by yourself where you said, i have to read this, that you felt that your father's legacy and importance in the Panathion pantheon sorry pantheon (laughs) of um, music history was underrated wait a minute i can and presumably there's no question about his stature in cream so i guess somewhat this comment must have been relating to his post cream work and and journey um and and as i said to you before i felt that jack after cream has had a lot of iterations iterations uh, a lot of journeys, played with a lot of guitarists, trower uh, 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 Moore, and, and Clem Clemson. And I wondered if he was here today, or indeed your perception, where, you th- like th- where do you think he would like his post-cream legacy? Which part of all that journey would you think his post-cream legacy he might be most proud of? I think I know what I feel he should be most proud of, but I'd be interested to know what you feel, if does.
1: Well, I mean, I know what he feels. <laughs> he, would feel, he would say um, his work with Lifetime, which okay. was just after Cream, yeah. uh, with, with Tony Williams on drums, John McCormick on guitar, yeah. um, Larry, Larry Young on Hammond, um, because that was the part of my dad, I think, that he felt, you know, it was a kind of cutting-edge jazz music, Uh, but still, but completely unique. So, you know, you put the greatest jazz, you know, Tony Williams was in Miles Davis's second great quintet, as they called it, with Herbie Hancock. and, um, And they were all wearing black suits and little thin ties in sort of 1967, 68. And then two years later, he wanted, Tony himself wanted to be a rock star. And there was that little window of time where I think real musicians who could really play and really understood history and had had an incredible depth of understanding of the potential of music could also become rock stars and, and fill stadiums and all of that kind of stuff. So I think them meeting and putting this band together with with, with John Godwin, um was what my dad, in potentiality, would say, was the most important thing of course he did as you know because you know his career you know he did so many different things um, but we can get into also like him sabotaging himself and, and like he's an artist or an artiste with an E on the end so you know it's like there's all of that side of it too as well so. Well, so,
3: well it's interesting actually because had you asked me uh, my favourite track and the favourite one of my favourite bands was the Mick Taylor. Uh, one. One of my favourite tracks was Spirit, which was actually written by Tony Williams. Right. So, uh, so the, 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 the... And was the, that
1: with uh, the band that my dad had with Mick and... Mick Taylor and... Carla the, Bray, Yes, yes, um, yes uh bruce on drums.
3: yes yes bruce Gallet, and, yeah. and uh they i thought uh, that ronnie leahy i thought it was a fantastic band and they played spirit which are and had he been here i'd love to ask jack why didn't you write more song, or why did not you like play more songs like you know, well i
1: mean to, to be i know mick a little bit and i'm sure he won't mind me saying but you know mick had been in france with the rolling stones they'd made exile on main street and it's probably the greatest rolling stones album ever made i think personally and that is because mick taylor had joined the band and um and then unfortunately or whatever without judgment uh hanging out with keith richards for a few months in france (laughs) mick taylor is like a heavy smackhead, you know by this stage you know going no i haven't got a problem i'm just going to inject it in my eyeball you know um and um So Mick decides to leave the Rolling Stones, you know, and unfortunately, or without judgment, my dad had been in West Bruce and Lang and descended into the same level of addiction. So, and then he's at home with my mom going, I'll never take that shit again, you know, cleaning up his act, and Mick's going, yeah, I've, I've, I've knocked it on the head, you know. And then they put a band together, and it's always a great idea to put two guys who are recently off heroin together in a band saying yeah we're not going to take heroin so oh yeah let's write a song oh, um no actually yeah where's that phone number <laughs> so i think again yes many incarnations of my dad's bands were just incredible full of potential and there is an old gray whistle test as you know yes. yeah. that band but i think it did also quickly descend back into a band with those
3: kinds of issues so, Can I ask one? my second question? Was yeah. and I, I think you might have answered before. I went to the um, uh, well, some of us here might have gone to the the cream farewell concert, which I found rather slightly underwhelming. Not because of Jack, the
1: one in uh, 2005, five,
3: yeah. Um, number one is they didn't have martial amps, and as soon as I got in there, I realized that something was amiss. And secondly, you said that Clapton by that stage had his own style and, and he wasn't prepared to go outside of it and I felt he was sort of playing, BB King plays Cream was the concert rather than it being the fusion that I was, I was hoping for.
1: I, I wondered
3: whether the question is, did, did your father feel satisfied with that concert? Did he feel he'd put a ghost to rest or was he did he was he was thoroughly excited by the whole thing?
1: I think. I think they were all really pleased initially. And my dad was pleased. We were all pleased with my dad because literally a year to the day before he stood on stage for the first night at the Albert Hall, he was in a coma. He'd had a liver transplant. And uh, his body was... They used the wrong... Well, it was just lots of complications at different phases of that. And anyone that's gone through it with yourselves or with a loved one, a kind of serious liver transplant type level of you know all kinds of things can go wrong so he was in a coma we were all standing around him being told by the doctors he's not going to pull through then some by some miracle he pulled through and he went through recuperation he had to learn to sing again all of this stuff so so really just for him to get to do it was a miracle you know um you know he wasn't a person that um You know, he was very pragmatic in that sense. So he got on with it. He did it. Um, So, yeah, musically, I mean, Eric is Eric. I mean, I don't think he's ever, me personally, I don't think he's ever done anything as good as Cream since since at all. I mean, you you know, you can, the Beano album, all of that, that's really groundbreaking stuff. But by Cream, and Mm -hmm. and I think that's because he's playing with those two guys. Uh, they're sort of lighting a fire under him and he's going oh wow and I think that maybe that as as we spoke about before you know by the end of Cream maybe it was just too much for him it's like I want to go back to something that's a bit more traditional in terms of arrangement because you know can you imagine playing with Jack and Ginger in that sense you know I think it might have got he might have gone oh you know what if I what if I do go back to having the rest of the band behind a curtain? <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I'm a huge fan, of have always been a fan of Eric's playing, but yes, he has become more conservative over the years. Maybe it's inevitable. I mean, playing, rock, playing blues at the age of 80, I mean, everyone's still doing it. It's yeah. great, but I don't know whether it does slow down and become a little bit, the perception of it becomes a little different.
0: He does uh, the the first farewell concert. He, he does wear one of the greatest rock and roll shirts of all time. The red, the red, yeah. the red
1: shirt that we saw. Well, it's quite country and western. Isn't yes, it? I've yeah, always yeah, wanted yeah. that shirt. Oh well, <laughs> uh, we can give him a call. I've got his number. <laughs> Over
0: to Mr. Um, Mr. Magazine.
4: Thank you. Just a question echoing jason's comments earlier heavenly cream is a fantastic album congratulations on that it's superb reinterpretational or whatever you call it you mentioned about working with ginger and there's been so much written about the uh relationship shall we say between your father and ginger what was it like for you working with him and just a quick one I know you. I've seen you. You've got a tour with Kofi uh, doing the Cream in um, Europe and the States. Are you going to extend that Cream tour into the UK? Because it's five years since we saw you in Sheffield.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, this. It, to be totally honest, I'm going to st- try and find a way to say this without it getting complicated. But so me and Kofi have worked together quite a lot, off and on for many years. We got approached by a manager. Uh, we brought in this guitar player, uh, Will Johns, who is Eric's nephew by marriage. Uh, and they stole the project from us. So they, they fired me, told me that I was a terrible person, went around to all the promoters and slagged me off. And, um, and, they, and then they kind of pulled Kofi onto their side. And then a few months later, they fired Kofi himself as well. Um, after three years of building this project up, Getting all the agents involved, using our father's legacy and our connection to it. So, um, so Kofi just got in touch a few weeks ago and said, "Do you want?" I've got a little European tour. We're playing the hundred. We're playing three shows in the UK. So, it's not. It was never what I wanted to do full time anyway. It was just a tribute to my dad, and I think it'd be really nice if me and Kofi do it some more. You know, um, and heal that wound because. It was shocking the way we were treated. It's the music business. What can I say? You know. Um, and uh, so yeah, I think we will. If, you know, I've got agents that are interested. It's just Kofi's organised this. So there are two or three. Is there one in Barnoldswick or somewhere? I think. But and we're playing the Hundred Club um, in London. But I think if it goes well, yeah, we'll do a proper tour. I'm booking a tour for my own band in June, uh, so I'll be around the UK then. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I didn't want to come across as negative, you know, but it's just, this is the music industry. People go, oh, I'll, t- I'll take something and I'll make it, you know, I'll sort of, that's what happened. So a manager said that he owned the brand, you know, it's like you own the cream brand? Yeah, <laughs> Oh, take me to court, you know, so I, and he didn't pay me. So I, I, and he lives in New Zealand, so I've been in a court case for four years. And now they're threatening me with 40 grand's worth of court costs if I can push it forward. So, but my lawyer thinks I've got a good. It's just nonsense. It's like I'm just trying to make, trying to do something beautiful for my dad. You know, along the way, it wasn't. And some guy came along and stole it. Also. <laughs> so, there you go. Um, I love Kofi. He's an amazing musician. And um, so, hopefully, we can do it again and not get ripped off and uh, stay friends so there you go and as far as Ginger goes um, yeah I mean I always would send Ginger an email on his birthday and he was really polite by email you know always had a really good relationship with Ginger by email (laughs) so there you go Um, but yes I mean there was a funny moment the first we we did two different days with Ginger for the Heavenly Cream Project at Abbey Road Um, on the first day we did a take of Sweet Wine with a wonderful singer called Nathan James and Pee Wee Ellis and Henry Lowther and a bunch of us playing, um, and I think I said, "Mark Waters, the film director, he's, I think he's put it in this documentary." And I think I said, "Oh, that was great. Should we do one more for luck?" You know, just which is what you always say when you're in the studio, you know. And everyone goes, "Yeah, all right, let's just do one." And I think I said it and looked round, and Ginger was staring at me, and he goes. <laughs> you try to fucking kill me. <laughs> and he goes like this. He, he sort of punches. He goes, my fucking heart. You know? So there you go. It was like, uh, did I get the accent right? Um, so like, uh, yeah, I mean, but at the same time, I've had some great times with Ginger. Like he was not who he, you know, obviously he's got this kind of, uh, you know, reputation for being this sort of horrible bloke, you know. <laughs> but he wasn't. He was a lovely, like his now his widow could see. Who's African? She posts lots of photos on Facebook, and um, and he looks just so happy when he's with her. You know, there was a whole other side to him, and I think a lot of that kind of ornery sort of kind of uh, gruffness was just a front. he learned to to put up and also i don't think he liked sycophancy you know i think a bit like me i don't like that and i'm not sure my dad i've seen that a lot with famous people they kind of go don't treat me any different from anyone else no no i don't want i'm just a person you know i just happen to be famous and then somebody doesn't treat them differently and they go would you you know i'm a fucking star so so it's like it's a i think it creates my little bit of experience of success so far in my life i think it creates a bit of a kind of uh you know bipolar situation where you have to really work at staying grounded because people are coming at you saying here would you like to sleep with my wife you know or in i'm using it metaphorically but you know it's you can lose your trust with just normal relationship, because you don't. Sometimes you don't know what people's agendas. You know, as I say, you know, I trusted a manager and and they stole a the whole thing from me. You know, and um, uh, I didn't. I didn't see that coming. You know, um, I had contracts and everything. Didn't make any because a contract's meaningless if you if somebody wants to break it. Then they you know. So I mean, I think in terms of that level of Cream's level of success and all of that, um, I think they did put up a guard. And I think that that Ginger's reputation to some degree is the remnants of that, the residue of like, okay, I've just got to put up this guard. Get out of my way, you know, just start, be horrible for the sake of it because everybody's like, can I touch the hem of your garment please please fuck off
0: alright <laughs> <laughs> Jodie I hope your questions are good, a good one after this yeah, yeah.
2: Um,
4: it was just a quick question we were talking um, before about Blind Faith which by the way I think would be a brilliant album to do uh, here um
3: and i just wondered what your if you knew what your dad's thoughts were about blind faith and
2: whether he'd ever worked with steve winwood before um, cuz I, I imagine like the the kind of would have been a bit of a clash <coughs> with the vocals um because perhaps they're quite similar but um i just wondered if you knew
1: oh um, yeah i mean i think i think they bo- both admired my father and steve admired each other i mean i'm a huge winwood fan you know Arca the Diver, you know, I mean, all that stuff. Even the, that more pop star, you know, just an incredible singer and Spencer David, all that stuff. But um, I think at one point they were considering having Steve in Cream uh, as as a keyboard as a fourth member, touring member maybe with, with uh-huh. some keyboard. I did hear my dad talk about that a little bit, I think. Um, Blind Faith, you have to remember that when Cream split up, uh, Eric and Steve put that band together and there was a knock on the door and it was Ginger and he joined himself to the band. So, so you know, it wasn't his idea. He, Eric and Ginger didn't go off and tell my dad to F off. You know, it wasn't that. At least as far as I know, it wasn't that. Um, and my dad, you know, again, as we've sort of intimated a little bit tonight, you know, his interests were... He wasn't kind of bothered by it I think he had so much that he wanted to do and I think that they you know again going back to something we didn't touch on um, a theme for Imagine Western that was on my dad's first solo album uh, Cream demoed it so and that's why we did it on Heavenly Cream uh, because P Brown wrote the lyrics and P was making this record with us um, and so some of my dad's music that then ended up coming out on his solo projects, were being rejected by Cream, not the musicians necessarily, but the management and the label as being too left field for a commercial band. And um, so I don't think my dad was... I don't know what he was felt at the time, because, you know, obviously they had this huge level of success and then it was done, and they all went their separate ways. Um, But I don't think he was short of ideas of what he wanted to do um and blind faith were great but you know it was a strange band right blind faith itself is a whole other story that i don't really um, know well enough to tell but some of those songs can't find my way home I and mean, it's just incredible music um come and
2: talk about
1: if you know anybody that might want to come well, talk you about could it, ask, the, I could, you, could, you could ask course. Kofi Baker. I mean, Kofi is a very different kind of person to me. Let's put it like that. He's Ginger Baker's son, but um, but he's an amazing guy and uh, an incredible musician. Uh, and he would, I'm sure, he'd do it. You know, if you, he's a, he works if there's a gym nearby and you can get him broccoli and eggs, uh, <laughs> he's your man. So I, yeah, I think maybe yeah. that's a great idea. I mean, I I know I'm not friends with Steve Winwood, but I know someone that is friends with him. But I'm not sure that would happen because Steve's <laughs> well, you, I mean, he's notoriously difficult to get to do anything these days. I think. Mm-hmm.
0: I was there, I was at the uh, Blind Faith gig, the only one they ever played. in The outdoor in this one. Yeah, I was. Oh,
1: yes, I was there. Wow. Anybody got a final question? Yes. Sir. If I'm coming back to play, what kind of stuff? Do you want to hear Beethoven? Do you want to hear the bl- uh, Do you want to hear the blues? What do you want to hear? Do you want to hear some songs and blues and that kind of thing? A mixture. Gu- guitar. You do what you and- want. Uh, All right. Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh yeah. So this is absolutely brilliant, and we're so pleased. Thank you, Melton. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. <laughs> Cheers, sure, sure.